Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. So this morning, we are wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount. And so the sermon, where we're at today in the Sermon on the Mount is kind of like the series finale. If you if you watch TV shows from beginning to end, the series finale is, is a big part of that. The series finale wraps up um, what that show is really about. It puts a bow on it. It's the final word. Um, and it really kind of is really kind of putting a, a, an exclamation point or a punctuation mark on that series, really saying this is what that series is about. So think about your favorite TV show and think about the series finale. And so series finales are either lauded, they're either like really, you know, people really love them or they hate them. So some examples of good series finales are like Breaking Bad, which is my favorite TV show ever. It's just poetic. It's beautiful um, how they were able to wrap that show up. The Office, even after a couple of really bad seasons, had a really good finale, The Sopranos. And then there's some really bad seasons finales like uh, how I met your mother um, was it was people hated the end of that show um, Game of Thrones which I never watched but I did I, I got I was really entertained by everybody on social media just dumping all, just all their hatred all over uh, the finale of Game of Thrones um, because the season finale really says what that show is about and it can ruin the, sh- the rest of the show for for those who've watched it. And Jesus has the perfect finale for the Sermon on the Mount. He's bringing everything home. Um, He wants us to consider everything that he said when it comes to things like anger, lust, money, prayer, anxiety, judging others, priorities, all of these things related to the life that he's called us to live um, and, and, the, and the flourishing life that he promises in Matthew chapters five through seven. This is Jesus's vision for the good life. And so what he's saying here at the end of Matthew chapter seven is that you have to deal with Jesus's words. You have to deal with his words in the way that he says that you deal with them, that you can't just rob the Sermon on the Mount of phrases like judge not lest you be judged or, um, or, or, you know, um, ask and you receive or ask knock. And you, you, you can't just take those words out of their context and, and make them what you want them to mean. They have to be what Jesus wants them to mean. Um, they, they, Jesus has a very clear message throughout this entire uh, section of the Bible. And it really comes down to this. There are only two ways to live. There are only two ways to life. And you're going to build your life on something. You're going to build your life on the rock, as Jesus describes it, which is... Um, is, is him and his word, or you're going to build your life on sand, which is everything else. And so I'm going to read this last section of Matthew chapter seven. Uh, I'm going to read this at the end of this. I will say, this is the word of the Lord. And I ask you to say, thanks be to God. Starting in verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does not, and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God.
So Jesus says these words, but what gives Jesus the right to say this? What gives Jesus the right to say that there are only two ways that you can live? Um, why, why can Jesus say that following him is like building your house on a rock and that everything else is like building your house on sand? It really comes down to those last two verses, and it's Jesus's authority. It says that, you know, when Jesus finished these things, that the crowd was astonished, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribe. So Jesus is not just telling them what the law said. He was saying, I'm the one who actually gave you the law. I'm the one who created the law. And so wrapped up in Jesus is the authority to dispense that law as he chooses. This reminds me a lot of uh, the Chronicles of Narnia and, and the line, the witch in the wardrobe. And there's the scene where the white witch is condemning Edmund and, uh, and reminding Aslan of what the law says. And, and Aslan snaps back at her and says, do not cite the deep magic to me, witch. I was there when it was written. And it's almost as if Jesus is saying that as he's saying these words, as he has Pharisees and scribes and teachers and other people giving their opinion about what the word of God should actually be about. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, no, I'm in control. I'm the one who gets to tell you what this says. I'm the one who dispenses blessing and dispenses curse. I'm the one who tells you what the good life leads to. And because of this, everyone, we see this in verse 24, Everyone here who hears this has to deal with Jesus's words. You can't make them what make him what he's not. You can't just say that Jesus is a good teacher. You, you can't say that Jesus was an impactful thinker. You can't say that Jesus was just an advice giver. You have to take Jesus at his word for who he says he is. And Jesus says that he is God, that he is God, the son, the second person of the Trinity. And that he has come into the world, and this entire thing, this entire teaching is about a kingdom, and this kingdom is wrapped up in this idea of covenant, that Jesus is the one who gives the blessings of the covenant life and also the curses for those who don't follow him. And so Jesus is saying, you got to choose. you got to build your life on something, and he's telling us, he's saying, build your life on me. Build your life on Jesus, and you get life. And so with this in mind, Jesus is giving two things in this last part of Matthew 7, the last part of the Sermon on the Mount, his series finale. He's giving a plea and he's giving an invitation. He's giving a plea and he's giving an invitation. And I am also, as, as your pastor, making this plea and invitation to you as well. I want you to live the life that Jesus called you to live, both here and for eternity. So let's look first at the plea. Jesus makes a plea. He says, don't build your life on anything else. Jesus gives the example of a house. And so when you think about a house, a foundation is really important to a house. The house can be incredibly beautiful, but if the foundation's not any good, the house is going to fall apart. So why does Jesus give the example of a house? Well, a house provides safety. Um, it provides security. We have locks on our doors because we don't want threats to come in. Um, if, you know, it provides a place of warmth. You know, over time, as we, you know, we've gotten better at building houses that keep warmth inside of them. Um, it's a place of comfort. Um, our, our homes are supposed to be places of peace and protection. And we all want that. We all desire that. Those are good human instincts. We want to be safe, um, both physically and spiritually. And so if you're going to build a house, you need to build it on something solid. 
build it on something solid because you want that house to last. You don't want it to be taken away. You don't want it to be something that's here today and gone tomorrow. And so in the ancient world, when you would build a house, you would build a house on, on a rock. You would build a house on something that was solid. And so you would find the, the most solid level ground that you possibly could find, and you would put your house on top of that. Now, today, um, we, we don't just put our house on level ground. We dig down deep. We build a foundation. And so we, we, di we dig deep, as deep as we possibly can to build that foundation. We want it to be solid. We don't want it to be moving. Um, and, and really, because that's the most important part of your house is the foundation. Last year, we bought a, a condo here in JP, um, this, this triple decker. Uh, we didn't buy the whole thing. We're not, we're not balling like that. Um, but we, we bought one part of it. We call it a flat because it makes us feel British and makes us feel you know more important. Um, but, but we bought it and we're totally blessed to do so. And then when you buy a house, you have to get an inspection. And especially all these triple deckers here in JP because uh, they're all built in the late 1800s. They're old houses. And so when our inspector came and he looked at our house, he said, you know, it's amazing because this building is perfectly square. He said, even though the building's over 125 years old, the, the building itself is perfectly square because the foundation that it sits on is so good. These old triple deckers sit on a double foundation. And, uh, and, and, and so they're very well built. So what would happen if you were to build your house on a bad foundation? The floors start to bow, um, the drywall cracks. There's all sorts of issues that come from the foundation not being right. And in the New Testament, um, they talked about building your house on the sand. Um, you know, it, they didn't take the time to find a good spot. So they just put a, a structure up on the, the first piece of land they could find. It was cheaper. It was easier. And this is what Jesus says, building your life on anything other than him looks like is building your house on an unsteady foundation because all of us build our lives on something. All of us want that sense of home. We want that sense of security and safety and protection and provision. We, we all want that. And if you look at it here in the passage, you know the both the wise person who builds their house on the rock and the fool who builds their house on the sand built something. Both of them built something. It doesn't say that the wise person built a home and that the fool didn't build a home. This isn't like the you know the uh, the, you know, the the fable of the grasshopper uh, who, who was who was a wise who, you know who stored everything up for winter. Like both built something. Both built their life on something. So what this means is that every person, whether you're following Jesus or not, is trying to look for the good life trying to look for meaning, trying to look for purpose, trying to look for home. Because every person ultimately does what they think will make them happy. And so what we build our lives on is what we think will make us happy, what we think will give us fulfillment, what will give us safety and protection both here and for eternity. And we inherited this from, from our first parents, Adam and Eve, the very first people created. You know, why did Adam and Eve eat the fruit? I mean, it wasn't because they were hungry. It wasn't just because they, it wasn't like they didn't have all other sorts of things in, in the garden that they could eat. It's that they thought that that would bring them life. They thought that build, building their life on being in control, on being like God, was better than trusting in the solid foundation that God had set for them. And we, we're no different. You can build your life on your education. You can build your life on making your family proud on on children 
You can build it on status or your career or rising above the current situation that you're in. You just want to do better than your parents or you want to get to that next place or the next destination. You want to, you think if you can get yourself there, that that will be the good life. You can build it around relationships, around the love of another person. You can build it around your ability to hustle and show effort and, and, and really just fulfill that inner desire to, to make yourself something or to attain something. All of that is building on sand. Every bit of that is building on sand. So, so why does Jesus compare all of that to building on sand? It's because sand shifts. Shifting sand makes a bad foundation. If you build your house on sand, it might look good one minute, but as soon as the rain comes and the rivers rise and flood and the wind blows, the sand shifts and the house falls. If you base your life on anything other than Jesus, it's like shifting sand because if you're basing your life on education, someone's going to come along who's smarter than you. You may not believe that, but someone will. If, if it's all about your success and your hustle, you'll find somebody who's more motivated or you might find that your efforts are frustrated because you don't get what you think the effort you're putting in should turn out. It, or it could be the expectations of others. Expectations from other people are, are fickle and they constantly change. They like you one minute, they don't like you the next. And if that's what you're basing your life on, that house is going to fall as soon as their opinion shifts on you. Another way the sand shifts is when you compare yourself to others. If you're comparing yourself to other people, it is a constant moving target. Because what we tend to do when we compare is, you know, like I'm not comparing myself to like, you know, Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos. I'm comparing myself to those people who are just a little further ahead than I am, are a little further behind, who seem attainable. I don't want to be like the people who are who maybe aren't, don't have it quite as together as I do. So I compare myself to them and think I want to be ahead of them. But I look at the people who are a little further along in life, who have a little bit more money, who have a little bit more success and think I want to be like them. But when we, when we do that, it's a constant moving target, and we don't realize that others are just as broken as we are. They're just as messed up as we are. And if they're building their house on anything other than Jesus, it's going to crumble. And there's this incredible quote by Charles Spurgeon. He said that we tend to build up our own houses with the ruins of our neighbor's mansions. In other words, when their houses have crumbled because they built their lives on something other than Jesus, we look at that and still think, you know what, that's better than my life. So I'm going to borrow that. It's shifting sand. But it's also building on sand means that it's easily blown away. You know, if you've ever put up like a, 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 like a tent on a beach and a really strong wind comes by, or if you've just, you know, I don't know, tried to walk through Boston with, a, with an umbrella during a nor'easter, like it's not going to last very long. It's going to get blown away really quickly. It doesn't stand a chance. And so the rain that we see here that Jesus describes and the floods that rise and the winds represent the trials of life, that everyone is going to experience these things. Everyone is going to experience something that happens in their life, whether it's losing a loved one or losing a job or, or frustration or the, uh, the impact of our own sin, um, seeing injustice that either happens around us or to us, we're going to experience those things. That's a common part of being human. Jesus says this in uh, earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. He says in Matthew 5, 45, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. 
the idea of karma that uh, that you know good things happen to good thing people and bad things happen to bad people isn't biblical. Bad things happen to good people because we live in a broken world. And sometimes good things happen to people who are pursuing evil because the world's disordered and not right. It's not a one-to-one comparison. Sometimes when it rains, it's a downpour and it can wash away everything we've worked for in a blink of an eye. And if our hope is in something other than Jesus, our lives will falter and fall. If you're the foundation of your life, you know, your ability to get a good education, that is a weight that you are not meant to bear. To put your self-worth on your education, you know, it's never certain enough. If you're putting your hope in the in the in either your, your current family and kids or the hope of a spouse and kids, that's a weight that they are not meant to bear. They're never meant to bear the weight. You were never meant to bear the weight of others' expectations to buoy your own soul. But also when we hope in temporal things, we tend to cling to them. We tend to fiercely protect those things. And I, and I think you probably don't see, I think we see this probably more than anything right now in politics. And I think particularly Christians who are clinging to politics as their hope, and there becomes this nasty commingling of, of Christianity and politics, kind of this, this Christian nationalism, uh, which leads us to protect self-interest over addressing injustice or addressing the plight of others. And what happens when we do that, we cling to a faulty foundation, the entire thing falls. Our witness tends to fall when that happens. So Jesus is saying, don't cling to anything but him. Don't base your life on anything but him. You need something solid. So the invitation in all of this is build your life on Jesus. Build your life on Jesus. And Jesus here, he's he's calling us. He's saying, listen to my words. Do them. Build your life on me. Build your life on this. And what's he saying by saying that he's a he's providing a foundation for you to build a home on? That he's the place that you find safety. That he's the place you find security. That he's the place that you find peace. He's calling you home. He's saying, rest on me. Look, I've mentioned Augustine a bunch of times during, during the Sermon on the Mount. St. Augustine uh, is an African church father from the fourth century. He's a, he's a personal hero to me in the faith. Everything, by the way, that we believe, um, we owe a lot of that to Augustine um, by, by, by formulating and putting all that together in a way that we can understand. Um, you know, like Augustine is, is, is a hero. Uh, but Augustine tried everything in, the, in this, this pursuit of home. He based his life on sex. He based his life on success. He based his life on denying every earthly pleasure once he figured out that those two things didn't work. Um, And he realized that what he was looking for was a place to rest. And probably Augustine's most famous quote is this, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. When you trust Jesus, you find safety, you find that he's sure, you find that he's steady. And when we see this in Jesus, we see the personification of God's love, and we see the personification of God's promises, that he has always been safe, that he's always been sure, that he's always been steady. As I was reading in, in Psalm 22 this week in my, in my quiet time, um, I was reminded of God's faithfulness, and, and David recounted God's faithfulness to his ancestors. 
And he said the reason for his hope is that he believes since God had been faithful in the past, that God would be faithful to him. And this comes from this, this Hebrew word, which is the word hesed. Uh, and the best description for this word, we don't have a great English translation, is covenant faithfulness, the steadfastness of God that God promised he would be their God. He promised that he would be their people. And in fact, that idea of God's covenant faithfulness is mentioned 248 times in the Old Testament. And in correlation with that, his steadfast love is mentioned 49 times. So why can we have hope? Why can we be certain when we place our life on the foundation of Jesus and what Jesus has done for us, why can we be certain? It's because of God's covenant faithfulness and his steadfast love. That the same love that was just, that was given to David and his ancestors and the people in, 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 in Jesus's time that he's talking to here is the same love that Jesus gives us through the cross as he exchanges your sin for his right standing with God. That God, he is faithful to the end, that he is immovable and that the promises of God do not change. See, anything else that you build your life on will fall. In verse 27, it says it will be a great fall. But the problem is, is that others can't see the foundation of your life right now. It's hidden. People can't see your heart, but God sees it. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, it says, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. If your foundation is on something other than Jesus, I, I doubt you've made a total wreck of your life. I, I doubt the outward appearance of your life is just a complete train wreck. Now, for some of us, it may be, um, but for a lot of us, it's it's the it's the inner person that that might be in trouble. Back uh, back in Alabama, there was a a, a, a generational tornado about ten years ago, um, uh, on April twenty seventh, two thousand eleven. Uh, and this tornado in, in in the South, tornadoes are a massive problem. They cause all sorts of havoc and devastation. If you've ever been around one, and uh, the wall cloud for this tornado was two miles wide at one point, and it had I mean came within like a mile of my of my house. Um, and had devastating effect. And there were entire neighborhoods, entire parts of cities completely wiped off the map. And that's evident de devastation. But I remember talking to a guy who said that his house looked perfectly okay. And from the outside, it was a, it means it's some minor damage, some roof damage, like a broken window, nothing that couldn't be fixed. So he's thinking, hey, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be great. So the, so the inspector comes and he looks at the house and he comes back to the man and he says, I'm sorry, but your house has to be torn down. And the guy's like, what are you talking about? The house looks fine. He goes, no, no, no. Why does it need to be torn down? He said, the problem is, is that the tornado came, and though it didn't destroy your house, it stretched your house off of the foundation, not to the point that it broke, but twisted the foundation slightly. And you can't see it to the naked eye, but the problem is, is no matter what you do, the walls will never be straight. The, 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 the drywall is going to crack. The floor is going to sink. And eventually one day this house is just going to fall down. See, the rain, the flood, the winds, all of that also represents judgment. And there's a day coming when the foundation of all of our lives are going to be expected, inspected. And even if everything looks fine on the outside, the question is, is what's going on underneath? What's going on in the foundation of your soul? And the reality is, is that only Jesus is steady. Only Jesus is faithful. 
And when it comes to that day of judgment, when it comes to that day of inspection, the only thing that's going to stand is those who've trusted Christ, those who've built their life on him and his unending grace. So you might be asking once you hear that, why does Jesus talk about those who hear the word and do the word in relation to those who are saved? That kind of sounds like the opposite of grace by faith, right? Well, what Jesus is saying here is that he's not saying that doing saves you. He's not saying that your obedience is what makes you right before God in the sense that I earned a place before God. But if you obey God and you do his commands, it shows that you get what does save you, that you understand what Christ has done for you. The entire Sermon on the Mount is trying to get you to live a life that pleases God, to live a life that is truly blessed, to live a life where you wholeheartedly desire after him. But here's the kicker. You can't do it. The standard that Jesus is setting here cannot be done by human effort. It cannot be done by any amount of trying, uh, by any amount of doing more or, or trying harder. He's saying there's a certain heart righteousness that you need to not express anger in a sinful way. There's a level of righteousness, a foundation in your soul that will keep you from lust, that will keep you from making money the point of your life, from using your words rightly and praying with the glory of God in mind. That You can never pray enough. You can never give enough. You can never want it enough. That if you build your life on your own goodness, it will fall. And that's why verses 21 through 23 that Bland looked at last week shows the problem. Their, their hope and their credentials were what they had done. Everything they said was, look at what I did for you, God. Look at what I've done for you. And the problem is, is that doesn't work. I remember there used to be kind of this trope in all every TV show and every movie that like, you know, getting to a, to a, into a nightclub was this exclusive thing. I remember it was always this exclusive. Thing. I remember the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air had this. I think Martin had this. Friends had this. Um, you know, Night at the Roxbury was an entire bad movie about a club and getting into a club. But this, it was very exclusive. And so people would go to the door, the main character would go to the door, and they just weren't enough to get into this club. Um, you had to know somebody to get into that club. It was based on another person's name and another person's credentials that you get in. So here's what it means to be a Christian is that I'm not looking to what I did for you, God, but look at what you did for me. That I don't get in on my credentials. I get in on the credentials of Jesus. And what this means is that we all have to see our hearts we have to see our sin and we have to realize that I have nothing but Jesus to get me in. I have nothing but Jesus to base my life on. And it's like the old hymn that we sang last week. My hope is built on nothing less but Jesus' blood on righteousness, on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is what? sinking sand. See, we, we have to see that. So, so trying to do things for God to get his approval doesn't work. Because if you understand the gospel as a Christian, even doing good things, we do them with half of a heart. We fail over and over and over again. I think if you were to sit down right now and be honest, and you were to write out a list of every sin that you've committed this week, every thought that was sinful, every intention of your heart, that it would stack up to a point where you would go, there's no possible way that if my life was based on this, that I could please God. 
But here's the truth about the rock upon which we stand. The rock upon which we stand that we build our lives on is shaped like a cross. That we build our life on the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. That Jesus lived a life that none of us could possibly live that he lived a perfect life in our place, that he died on the cross to pay for our sin, to exchange our life for his, and then to give us the resurrection that we so so needed. The key to this is this. If If you get that and you trust that alone, that you believe that Jesus died for you, that is the gospel, you'll obey. You'll obey because of what Jesus has done for you. You'll obey because you're accepted by God, not to be accepted by God. You'll do the commandments of Jesus. This is why James says that faith without works is dead. He doesn't say faith plus works, but he says the evidence of your faith is works. You don't meet Jesus and stay the same. The love and the free grace of Christ compels you to love others, which is the core of obeying God. It compels you to be gracious and patient and kind and forgiving and forbearing. So why do some hear but not base their life on this? Well, in the ultimate sense, some just don't know Jesus. They've been around church. They've heard the gospel. But the gospel never became theirs. It never became yours. It never became personal. You never owned it. It never reached your soul. These are simply disconnected truths that don't impact our lives. Tim Keller gave this great example. I have to give him credit because it was just too good of an example. I couldn't just take it. Um, uh, he, He makes this example of a vending machine. He says, if everybody's been to a vending machine and you put a coin in, you're trying to get some hot Cheetos or something, you put the coin in and the coin gets stuck. Now, universally, what do you do as soon as that coin gets stuck? Everybody can you know, mimic this if you want to, you bang right on the side of the machine, right? And what 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 usually happens? Voila, candy comes out. And like we hit the side of the, of, of the machine, the coin drops in, it activates, and you get your candy or your chips or your hot Cheetos. This is what Jesus's words are meant to do. They're meant to jolt you because for some people, and I don't know where everybody stands with the Lord. Like but for some people, it's like the coin got entered, but the coin didn't hit your heart. And, and, and something, and so he gives us this jolt so that the coin hits our heart and all of a sudden what comes out is an obedient life. For some of us, it may not be an issue of not knowing Christ. It may just be that there's this area of our lives. We've been walking in our lives for so long that we've been, we began to start to build part of our lives on on solid ground. And what Jesus is inviting us to do by banging the side of that machine, by jolting us is that coin would hit our hearts in a way that maybe an area of our life that we're not living under the Lordship of Jesus would change and that the fruit of that would be an obedience to him, a love for him, a desire to glorify him. And what this does is it gives us a grid by which to make wise decisions. The gospel helps us live gospel lives. Or as Tony Evans says, a well-built life results from the decision to establish that life on the activated word of God and not the appearance of truth, which is often tainted with the foolish opinions and reasoning of man. When you see the gospel, when you get what Jesus did for you, everything changes. We receive this new heart. And so here's the evidence that you've heard the gospel. 
Here's the evidence that you're doing the word of God. Are you convicted over your sin? Are you, does the Holy Spirit convict you over your sin? Do you have a simple faith in Christ that you trust Jesus alone? You believe Jesus died for you. You believe he rose again for you. And that simply by trusting him, you've been saved. Do, do you authentically repent of your sin? So not only do you feel bad about it, but do you turn away from it? Are you repenting? Repenting means to turn, means to turn away from your sin. It's a rejection of your sin, but also a looking to Christ and believing that he paid for it. Is there real change that's happening? It doesn't have to be massive change right away. Not everybody changes the way. It could be incremental. But when you look back at your life, has there been a change in, in how God has shaped you? Another's true prayer. Are, are you a person who prays and relies upon God? And then are you obedient to him and his word? Are these things true of your life? Are you, what are you building your life on? See, the gospel frees us to obey and to live wisely. I want us to live wisely and obey God as a church. And in the next couple of weeks, we're going to start a series around our vision uh, in two weeks. And, and, and the first week, we're going to look at what it means to be mature. I think to see every person in, in, from every culture experience the gospel is it going to require maturity as a church. Well, I want us to know who we are in Christ. I want us to live out a culture that we're loving and kind and gracious and it's safe. I want us to, to, for the gospel to impact how we live, that we be a people who are committed to justice and who love mercy, who walk humbly before the Lord. But also as individuals, I want us to really, really, really love Jesus. More than anything, I want you to love Jesus. I, I want you to know that you're loved by Jesus. I want you to know that you're free from sin, that you're free from condemnation, that there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. I want you to live in that. I want you to rest in that. I want you to base your life on that. So what's the one step that you need to take to build your life on Jesus in 2021? Maybe it's, maybe it's getting in on that discipleship plan. Maybe you just need to start reading the word and praying. These, these are ways that God grows your faith. And I guarantee that if you do those things, you will see God begin to defeat sin in your life. And also you'll, you'll see that you begin to obey him more freely. And maybe the gospel hasn't gotten to your heart. Maybe you need to trust Jesus. Or maybe there's an area of your life that you've not submitted to him as Lord. Let's talk about that. Shoot me a message. Um, call me, text me, email me. I'd love to talk with you about that. Let me pray for us. And then uh, we'll close up here in a moment.